The House will return Wednesday and stay in session through Friday. The Senate will return Tuesday and stay in session through Thursday. This week in the House, the House will not return until Wednesday because Republicans are spending the first part of the week at their issues conference in Orlando. So the first vote of the week will be set for Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up four bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House will begin consideration of H.R. 5, the Parents' Bill of Rights. And depending on what the White House does, the House may consider a veto message on H.J. Res. 30. That was the CRA resolution of disapproval on the Biden Department of Labor rule regarding ESG investing. Then on Friday, the House will resume and complete its consideration of H.R. 5, the Parents' Bill of Rights. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back into session on Tuesday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Brent Neiman to be a Deputy Undersecretary of the Treasury. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Eric M. Garcetti to be U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of India and Ravi Chaudhari to be an Assistant Secretary of the Air Force. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Laura Taylor Kale to be an Assistant Secretary of Defense. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jessica G. L. Clark to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York. Then the Senate took up and passed a motion to invoke cloture on a motion to proceed to S-316, a bill to repeal the authorization for the use of military force against Iraq. Then the Senate returned to the nomination of Jessica G. L. Clark to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York and voted to confirm her to that position. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Tuesday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the motion to proceed to S-316, repealing the authorization for the use of military force against Iraq. Now to the Biden family money trail. On Monday of last week, House Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer revealed that bank records he'd subpoenaed implicated what he called a new Biden family member in his committee's investigation of the Biden family's influence peddling scheme. He told Fox News' Sean Hannity that in March of 2017, just two months after Joe Biden left office as vice president, $3 million was wired into the account of a close Biden family business associate from two individuals closely tied to the Chinese Communist Party. That business associate then split the money and sent the majority of it to Biden family members. It was later revealed that the new Biden family member to receive money was Hallie Biden, President Biden's daughter-in-law, the widow of his son, Beau. There will be more to come from Comer and his committee. He told the media his news about the $3 million was the result of the first batch of subpoenas for bank records, and they had received records of what he called many more similar transactions. Meanwhile, on Friday, Hunter Biden filed a lawsuit against John Paul Mac Isaac, the Delaware computer repair store owner who handed Hunter's laptop files over to the FBI in the fall of 19, uh, 2019 after Hunter left the laptop with him and then failed to return to pick it up or pay for the repairs. The younger Biden claims Mac Isaac shared Biden's personal information publicly in violation of Biden's expectation of privacy. Biden says he wants a jury trial and what he calls compensatory damages from the computer repair shop owner. Now to illegal immigration. 
On Wednesday of last week, the House Homeland Security Committee, chaired by Tennessee Republican Mark Green, held a field hearing in Farr, Texas. The hearing was entitled Failure by Design, Examining Secretary Mayorkas' Border Crisis, and it featured testimony by Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz. Democrats decided to boycott the hearing, so their chairs were empty. And Committee Chairman Green, a West Point graduate and veteran of the U.S. Army, described the missing Democrats as AWOL, absent without leave. Asked by Chairman Green if the Border Patrol had operational control of the border as defined by the terms of the 2006 Secure Fences Act, which requires, quote, the prevention of all unlawful entries, unquote, Border Patrol Chief Ortiz answered, based upon the definition you have, sir, up there, no. The question was a setup, of course. Republicans have been asking the same question in the same format, using the same language, of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Mayorkas has been answering differently. He's been answering that the border is, in fact, secure, and that the U.S. government does, in fact, have operational control of the border. And the case for impeaching Secretary Mayorkas continues to build. Now to bank bailouts. Last week, the Biden administration decided to step in to bail out depositors in two banks, the Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York. Administration spokesman insisted it's not a bailout and went to great lengths to point out that the shareholders of the two banks would not be protected and that the management executives of the two banks would be fired. But depositors who had more than $250,000 in their accounts in the two banks will be protected fully. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it appears that more than 95% of the accounts had more than $250,000 in them. That $250,000 number is important because that's the amount of money the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation guarantees in each account. Money above and beyond that is deliberately not insured by the FDIC as a means to get depositors to police their own banks. And that's why what the Biden administration decided to do is so important and so dangerous. By announcing that in the cases of these two banks, the depositors will be made whole no matter how much money they had on deposit. And according to media accounts, some of the depositors had literally hundreds of millions of dollars in uninsured accounts. The Biden administration has introduced moral hazard into the banking system in a huge way. Let me quote from Alex Berenson, who wrote a very good piece on this on Thursday. Quote, we have limits on government-backed deposit insurance for good reason. Without it, large depositors have every reason to chase the highest possible interest rates on their money, even at badly managed banks. Why? They know that even if the bank squanders their deposits on bad loans, they'll get their money back, end quote. The Biden administration has just sent a signal to the marketplace that it will bail out depositors chasing high interest rates, even at badly managed banks. Guess what we're about to have a lot more of? Badly managed banks. Stay tuned. Trump arrest? On Saturday, former President Trump declared on his Truth Social account his belief that he would be arrested Tuesday presumably by law enforcement authorities, acting at the direction of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. The Manhattan DA is believed to be preparing an indictment related to an alleged hush money payment paid to porn star Stormy Daniels in the summer of 2016 as Trump was running for president. Wrote Trump in all caps, quote, will be arrested on Tuesday of next week. Protest. Take our nation back. 
end quote. If this happens, it will be the first time in the history of the nation that a former president has been arrested and charged with a crime. It appears D.A. Bragg might indict Trump for a violation of Section 175 of New York state law for falsifying business records, in this case, to be specific, declaring as legal expenses the $130,000 paid to Daniels to buy her silence when she threatened to go public in the midst of a presidential campaign with a claim that she had had an extramarital affair with Trump 10 years earlier. Falsifying a business record in New York is a misdemeanor, and it has a statute of limitations of two years, so it's too late to charge Trump with that crime. But New York law says you can upgrade that misdemeanor into a felony, which also has the advantage of having a longer statute of limitations, if you can prove the misdemeanor was committed in conjunction with another crime. So Bragg apparently wants to tie the misdemeanor falsifying a business record charge to Trump accepting an illegal campaign contribution as a means to make the falsifying a business record a felony. Here's the problem with that. The $130,000 hush money payoff expense can only be considered a campaign expense if it is meant to influence the outcome of an election and it would not have taken place outside the context of the campaign. But celebrities pay people off all the time for reasons that have nothing to do with a campaign. They pay people off because they're embarrassed or they don't want trouble in their marriage or they don't want to suffer harm to their reputation. None of those things have anything to do with the campaign. This exact question was litigated in 2011 when John Edwards was charged with multiple campaign finance violations for accepting more than a million dollars from a campaign donor to pay off his mistress during his 2008 campaign for president. The jury found him not guilty of one charge of accepting an illegal donation and deadlocked on five other charges, and the Department of Justice decided not to retry him. Not only was this legal question adjudicated in the Edwards case, this case itself was examined by the Federal Department of Justice years ago. The Robert Mueller-led Russia hoax investigation looked into this avenue as a potential means of getting Trump, and former FBI Director Mueller decided the case was too weak. And the Office of the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York decided on its own in 2019 to close its investigation of the matter with no recommendation for prosecution. And don't forget, even if you accept as true Daniel's version of the story, which Trump denies, Trump in 2016 was not the only candidate for president who paid somebody for something and then falsely labeled that something legal fees. The Hillary Clinton campaign, which paid for the so-called Steele dossier opposition research file on Trump, I'll refer to it as an opposition research file, even though large parts of it appear to have been wholly made up, reported the expense to the Federal Election Commission as a legal expense. So you literally have both presidential campaigns filing false records of expenses in the same election. You're going to charge one of them, but not the other? One of the key witnesses for Bragg's case against Trump is Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer who was convicted and went to prison. Cohen is an admitted liar and won't make the best witness on the stand. This case is so bad that legal commentator and law professor Jonathan Turley wrote of it, quote, although it may be politically popular, the case is legally pathetic. Bragg is struggling to twist state laws to effectively prosecute a federal case long ago rejected by the Justice Department against Trump over his payment of hush money to former stripper Stormy Daniels. In 2018, yes, 
that is how long this theory has been around, I wrote how difficult such a federal case would be under existing election laws. Now, six years later, the same theory may be shoehorned into a state claim, end quote. So the legal case against Trump is shaky, to say the least. It's no wonder the Department of Justice walked away from it. Now comes the Manhattan District Attorney determined to prosecute Trump for something, anything. This really does look like a witch hunt. Speaker McCarthy responded to the news by announcing that he would direct House Committee Chairman to investigate matters to ensure that no federal taxpayer dollars are being used in pursuit of this prosecution. An aide to House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan told the Washington Times that his committee's subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government is expected to respond to Bragg's plans with an investigation and possible hearings. One final note, anticipating your questions, no, there is no legal or constitutional prohibition on a felon running for or serving as president. The Constitution sets out the requirements for a candidate for president, and they are simple. First, the potential candidate must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. Second, the potential candidate must be at least 35 years old. And third, the potential candidate must have been a resident of the United States for at least 14 years. And that's our Washington Report for this week. 